you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you this evening to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. In a little time since we were in this study, but we continue on making our way as the Lord allows through each of the verses of this gospel. And we come now to, well, we're coming to verse 41, but I want us to read from verse 35 again. So let us. Let us read the Word of God from Luke chapter 12, verse 35, the connected thoughts that we have in what we dealt with last time and what we're dealing with again this evening. So, Luke chapter 12, verse 35, "'Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, when He will return from the wedding, that when He cometh and knocketh, they may open unto Him immediately.'" Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Amen. May the Lord, by His Spirit, bless His Word to our hearts, and may we receive it as the very Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we're glad that in this place we believe every Word of God is pure, and this is why there is worth in working through all the language of thy word. As we come to this portion, it is as profitable as other portions. And we pray that that profit may be received and known in all of our hearts. 
Grant that it may be of profit to me and profit to everyone here, to thy people may it be received in faith, and to those without Christ may it expose their unbelief, and may it cause them to consider their ways and to remember now their Creator. We pray, O God, that Thou will bless us then. Give us that hush, a sense of God by His Spirit being in our midst, filling the preacher with wisdom that far exceeds all his meditation or even his own knowledge, understanding of the moment, speaking words that are fitly spoken to the hearts of those before him. Fill them with thy spirit, we pray, for Christ's sake, and in his name we ask. Amen. You have heard me, I imagine many of you have heard me refer to Robert Murray McShane on various occasions. He is one of those bright lights from church history that anyone worth their salt will endeavor to understand a little more of their lives. His memoirs, the memoirs of McShane, have been published for years and widely available. And if you've never read those, you, you need to get a copy and read them. As Bonner works through the life of this man, a diary, and so on and so forth, you cannot but be challenged and encouraged by how he lived. He was a minister in a city of Dundee in Scotland during the middle part of the 1800s and died before his 30th birthday. And yet what an impact he had in his short life. I was somewhat amused in that strange way where you see the Lord working in ways that maybe in one sense mean nothing, but you can't help but notice it, the choice of a a McShane hymn tonight that was chosen, as well as uh, one by Andrew Bonner's brother Horatius, who also was living at that time and was a friend of Robert Murray McShane. This man understood that his the greatest need of his congregation was his own personal holiness. He confessed to often praying, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be made. And it appears in a measure he attained unto that more than most. He said, understanding the reality of, of his own life, it is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. A word spoken by you when your conscience is clear and your heart full of God's Spirit is worth 10,000 words spoken in unbelief and sin. He understood the need to live a holy life. As I say, it was, it was known that he lived such a life. In truth, after he died, it was said of him in the, one of the newspapers of Dundee that in Robert Murray McShane, Jesus Christ walked the streets of Dundee. What a testimony. Others said similar. During his life, Robert Candlish said of him, I cannot understand McShane. Grace seems to be natural to him. And his friend and colleague, Andrew Bonner, said of him after his passing, the impression left by McShane was chiefly that there had been among us a man of peculiar holiness. I urge upon you, read the life of this man. 
But what was it that made him so distinct in this way? Why was he known for peculiar holiness? How was it that he attained to such testimonies as these, which do not seem to be uh, exaggerated? If they are exaggerated, they're exaggerated by many, many different voices and testimonies. I believe in part it was his personal emphasis on eternity. You can never get away from that emphasis that he had in his life, this sense that eternity looms. And this can be shown by multiple sources of evidence, not least of which is the hymn we regularly sing together from our hymnal, When This Passing World Is Done. The thought of eternity was ever before him. And it was said that the vast bulk of his letters were sealed with the words of John 9, 4, The night cometh. That's how he lived his life. In fact, if I'm recalling correctly, there's some that say that his, his watch had in its dial a sunset reminding him of these very words, the night cometh. And this is how he attained his Christ-likeness, taking the language of our Lord Jesus Christ who lived by the same rule, the night cometh, the night cometh. McShane understood the need to live with readiness. And this is the theme we considered last time in verses 35 through 40, where I entitled the message simply, Are you ready? Are you ready? Is there a readiness in your heart? As we looked at those verses, just to remind you, you see here the posture of readiness. In verse 35, Let your loins be girded about and your lights be burning. The loins are girded, the lights are on. This is a sense of readiness that's here, which I'll not go into detail to explain now again. The purpose of readiness is given in verse 36. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. You see here, our Lord is returning. This is why they need to be ready. Our Lord is returning, first of all. His servants then will be waiting. His servants, those who are truly his servants, will be waiting. That is undergirding them because they are a ready people. The prize of readiness, verses 37 through 38, you'll see that they are happy at his arrival and they are served at his arrival. I can never read those words without being amazed that, that he will come forth and serve them. This is the Master. This is the Lord Jesus Christ depicted here, serving his people. And the provision of readiness in verses 39 and 40 it safeguards us and it shapes us. It shapes us because we know what is certain. The Son of Man cometh, and we know what is uncertain at an hour when you think not. So this is what we looked at last time. And with all that then having been said before, verse 41 tells us that Peter said unto Jesus, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? He asked the question, is this for the disciples, or is this for everyone? Now, when you study this, some take this a little further, in which I, I think is a stretch, in which they, they suggest that Peter really is, is asking, is this relevant to us? In other words, is this for the disciples, or is it for everyone else, excluding the disciples? Is he, as if he's trying to dodge the application of the text, but, but that's not what he says. He's seeking to discern, is this for the disciples or for everyone? And I, I think we have to honestly take it in that sense, that is it for the disciples or is it for everyone, including the disciples then? It's, it's not 
It's not Peter trying to dodge the application of the text, though you can see why he may have desired to. The Lord Jesus then speaks, not answering the question directly, but continuing on with a related theme. He carries on. The, the language of verse 42 through 48, this, this continuing theme carries on in this language, and therefore there is a sense of the readiness still being uh, urged upon, although the, the details given are somewhat distinct. And we look at the language of this, and let me remind you that this, this portion where, where we're in, this, this, this time of our Lord's ministry is, is known as, as the language, the section is like Him discipleship. Really, that's the emphasis. It's on discipleship. He is preparing His disciples. He's dealing with discipleship themes. Now, discipleship themes have application beyond disciples, and they show the importance of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want us to keep this in mind because some of this language comes across as not being relevant for disciples. And the language of judgment that we have read in the passage we're considering tonight might appear like it has no relevance if we're found in Christ this evening. It's not relevant to me. But the Lord doesn't say to Peter, He doesn't for a moment suggest you can switch off. This is for the unbelievers. The Word is for all. Our Lord Jesus, as head of His church, reserves the right to give whatever word has to be spoken, which includes words of warning. Words of warning that certainly have their application to those who reject Him, but also function to shake off the lethargy that can creep into the life of His people. We'll be seeing this more as we go through the book of Hebrews. Language of warning is given to a people who are expected to read a letter written by the apostle. I mean, this isn't going outside the church. This is within. This is addressed to a people who gather like you do and I do to worship together, to rejoice in Jesus Christ. And it is addressed, it is given, it is spoken, it is urged upon the hearts of those found within the visible church. And so our Lord Jesus does similar here. He will not allow His people to switch off when He gives language of warning. And it was His right, nay, even His responsibility to issue warnings that would have a dual function to both those truly His and those not. So we are dealing with these verses as the Lord gives us help, verses 42 through 48, and I've titled them simply, The Judgment of the Faithful and the Unfaithful. The Judgment of the Faithful and the Unfaithful. Christ deals here with the faithful and the unfaithful. And I want you to note firstly with me, commendation. There are words here of commendation. Verse 42, the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward? Him his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. In the commendation given here of the one spoken of, you'll see some things about him. First of all, he's a steward. He is called that. Who then is that faithful and wise steward? 
Our Lord Jesus repeatedly deals with the subject of stewardship and draws from the imagery of stewardship, which was very familiar to those of his generation. Men who would be given responsibility, their masters would give them this kind of place of ruling their affairs. If we would skip over to chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, you'll see it dealt with again. Luke chapter 19, perhaps a little more well-known. Luke 19, verse 12, and here he is near to Jerusalem. Verse 12, he's said, Therefore a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So you can see the clear imagery here. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a little, have thy authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, thou takest up that thou laidst not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it unto him that hath ten pounds, and then he makes the application, verse 26, For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. So our Lord deals with the subject of stewardship regularly. And if you were to be a steward, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, that it is required of a steward that he be found faithful. These stewards then are we the steward, this particular steward is told, we are told, is faithful. Who then is that faithful? But we're also told he's not only faithful, he's also wise. He is a wise servant as well, a wise steward, I should say. He, is, he needs to have both these qualities, not just faithfulness, but wisdom. He needs to be diligent and dependable, but also discerning. And these are important qualities for the steward because he's not just to keep giving himself to the work that he was given to do, but at times it's going to require wisdom where he can judge what ought to be done in a given set of circumstances. You have to be able to give him this responsibility knowing that he can possess that responsibility in a way not only that he'll keep doing what he's called to do, but also decide the right thing when he, his back's against the wall or some other problem arises. He needs to be wise. Faithful and wise. And Christian, this, this is a good thing to pray for. These two qualities make me faithful and make me wise. The faithfulness that keeps you pressing on, but the wisdom to press on in the right path. 
not just being diligent in anything, but diligent where you're best suited or what God has opened up to your hand. There are many people who want to be diligent, in some respects maybe are diligent, and yet they, they, they lack wisdom to really know how best to apply themselves. Maybe they have certain dreams and they imagine that that it has to be done in this particular way. And so, while they want to be diligent, and there's a certain amount of diligence in them, yet they have so carved out a future for themselves that if it doesn't look exactly as they have imagined, they won't exercise themselves as they should. This is a lack of wisdom. We need to be wise. I'm thankful that this congregation possesses, I I think I can say, a disproportionate number of people with these qualities. There is in this congregation, there are faithful, many faithful people and many wise people who function as the steward does here. But he's not just a steward, he is also a servant. Verse 43, blessed is that servant, doulos, slave. he's, He's also a slave. He's not the kind of person that thinks certain things are beneath him. He will do whatever is asked of him. He, he has this constantly in his mind, the language of Paul, when he was converted, what wilt thou have me to do? That's the language of servitude. And I've pressed this many times. I press it again, given what we're dealing with. Always, always be asking yourself, when you don't know what you should be doing, asking the Lord, what should I be doing? What would you have me to do? You don't want to be found idle. You don't want to be guilty of the, what the warnings and the judgments of passages like this because you're just sitting around. Ask the Lord. Inquire. He will guide. He will put things in your hand. He is a servant. He is not laboring for his own salvation. He is laboring to please his master, not to save his soul, but because he has a sense of obligation to his master for all that he has already done for him. And so it is for us. So what happens to him? Well, we're told that he is made a ruler. Verse 42, His Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. He is then made a superintendent. That becomes more clear in verse 44. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. He's given him a job. He He has applied himself faithfully and with wisdom. And when he sees this kind of work played out, then he gives him more authority, more responsibility. And all of you, most of you, I should say, will be very familiar of the example in Joseph when we think of this illustrated for us. Go go to Genesis 39 just for a moment. Especially you boys and girls, children in this congregation. Uh, Joseph is a very helpful uh, example for you in terms of helping you understand how God can use you at 17 years of age, he is, he is taken away from his family. Some of you maybe already are 17, maybe beyond. Some, some of you are, are not very far away from 17 years of age. And imagine being taken away, becoming a slave, and taken away from your home and your household. How would you respond? Would you be bitter against God? Would you be angry? Would you be upset? Would you, would you turn your back on Jesus Christ? Look what Joseph does. He's brought down to Egypt, Genesis 39, look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. 
hang on a minute, I thought he was a slave. I thought that he was placed in the hands of another, taken away from his family. This, is this not judgment? No. No, the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. So here he is. He is a steward. He is living out his life as, as a servant. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. In Egypt, this Egyptian master saw that the true God was with him. What a powerful testimony. There's something about this man that declares not just his faithfulness to his God, but it permeates the entirety of his life so that his faithfulness to God and his faithfulness to his master are so intertwined that they're seen as connected. That the reason, the reason he's faithful in his service to me is because of his fidelity to his God. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had he put into his hand. This is, this is remarkable. Utterly amazing. If you just try to put yourself there and see a, a teenager, a 17-year-old, finding himself in such a position as this. And yet, yet he, he doesn't allow the discouragement to fill his heart to the point that he becomes incapacitated or bitterness to fill his soul so that he, he neglects his worship of God as his master who sees him, first of all, just as another slave to buy, another person to conduct his affairs. He so stands out that he is distinct from everyone else and as I say again, the, the, the reason for it is the intertwining of his visible faithfulness to God being the reason why he was faithful to then his master. The Apostle Paul then encourages this kind of spirit, Colossians and Ephesians, when he speaks to servants, to slaves, and he tells them, don't be doing it with eye service as men pleasers. Have a, single, a singleness of heart. Please God. And when you do that, when you really do your work as in the eye of God, in the presence of God, they will see it. You will be distinct and you will be known. Maybe not to the same degree as Joseph. The Lord certainly in a somewhat unique fashion was upon him, but something similar. Look at the end of the chapter, Genesis 39, verse 21. By this time he has been thrown into prison. Prison. He didn't know anything about prison. Prison's commonplace today. And it was commonplace in certain pagan nations, but, but Joseph didn't know anything about prison. He just lived in his family, this, this small little group of people. And even when God gave his law later on, there was no stipulation for, for prolonged incarceration. There was no great big prison. Prison isn't really found in the mind of God, at least not directly in his law as far as I can understand. So this is something that comes out of the world and he, he is subject to this experience of incarceration being thrown for, he didn't even do, he wasn't even guilty of anything. But look at what happens, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. Mercy? How does he show mercy? He, he's, he's permitted him to be imprisoned. Oh, is, could there be any better 
understanding of the, your circumstances not dictating things. Like recognizing where you are and your interpretation of that. Be careful. Be very careful. Because Joseph could have looked at this. Others could have looked at it. They could have said, Look, God's clearly turned his back on him. Just like Job's friends did for Job. But the Lord was with him and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Boys and girls, note it, underline it. The Lord being with him makes all the difference in his life. But this is when one who is a faithful steward, faithful servant, is actually blessed and becomes superintendent. You read through the life of Joseph. He's not just placed in charge of Potiphar's house and then in the prison and the affairs of that, but then he's elevated to have charge of the nation. Of the nation. And Pharaoh also notes this intertwining of this man, it's, this, it's, it's, it's God. It's God that's making the difference. He, he notes that. Can we find such a man as this? All oh, the wise men of Egypt, all oh, the people that had been known for decades with their, their, their known clout of understanding of everything, and he's looking something distinct, so distinct, he is placed in charge. Why? Faithful and wise. Faithful and wise. And so he becomes a superintendent. You never know what God will do with your life if you just be faithful and wise. Understanding yourself to be a steward, that what you own isn't first and foremost yours, it's God's given to you to steward. Your time, your talents, your possessions, they're actually God's. He distributes them. He strengthens them. He empowers them. He multiplies them. He can also take them away. So, there's commendation here to this steward, this servant who becomes superintendent but there's also, in this text, corruption. There's corruption. Come to verse 45. And if that servant say in his heart, and of course it's not the same servant, he is giving this idea, perhaps the servant responds in this way to his Lord, or perhaps he responds in this way to his Lord. If that servant say in his heart, My Lord, the leth is coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and so on. Note this corruption, first of all, of the heart. If that servant say in his heart, that's where it begins, isn't it? The corruption begins in the heart. It doesn't begin because someone said something to you that upset you. And it doesn't begin in the circumstances of the apparent delay of the Lord. That's not where it begins. The problem is in the heart. It is the heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
you, my friends, dear believers, you need to guard your heart. Guard your heart. There are things that are outside of your control. Circumstances you can't dictate. You don't know what's going to happen next in your life. But guard your heart. Always be guarding your heart. This man, spoken of by our Lord here, he he succumbs to the satanic ancient whisper, Hath God said? He begins to doubt. begins to question. And so he begins to show himself not true. He is not true. The problem is in his heart. It's what he is saying in his heart. It's what he's saying comes out of his heart. Of course, the true servant, the true steward, the one who becomes a superintendent, he, he doesn't allow his heart to get carried away like this. He's guarding his heart keeping his heart with all diligence. There's not just a corruption of the heart, there's a corruption of the head. My Lord delayeth his coming. He's allowing this thought to come into his his mind. He's, He's walking by sight, not by faith. He's using reason to justify his actions that are about to be performed. He's thinking all of this. All of this is going on in his head. It begins in the heart. It goes into the head, corrupting the entire man. My Lord delayeth is coming. Maybe that's how you begin some sentences. And they express the same corruption that's going on in your life. My Lord, X, Y, or Z, my Lord doesn't care about me. My Lord doesn't see what I'm going through. My Lord isn't going to. And that's something that he said he would do. It's dangerous. When your mind starts to go down a path, again, this is is why I've repeated it often. It's not original to me. First read of it in uh, Lloyd-Jones' book on spiritual depression. When he argues the case from Psalm 41 and 42, the importance of talking to yourself instead of listening to yourself. But the point there is not to talk anything. It's to talk truth. Speak truth. What you know is true. Think of the passages where the apostle says, and we know. What's he doing there? Amidst the doubts and the concerns and the fears, amidst all the trials and the difficulties and the problems, What's he doing? He's anchoring their hearts on the things they know. Stop watching. Stop looking. Stop analyzing. Stop reasoning. That's what happened to Elimelech, isn't it? Famine comes to Bethlehem in the area. It begins to reason. I have these two boys. They're of a sickly constitution, it would appear, I'm going to take them to Moab. I'm going to get them away from the famine. And it's all reason. He's reasoning out in his head and the reasons why he should do what he's planning to do. But it was wrong. It was wrong. He, he, He was leaving a place where there was a lack of physical bread, sacrificing that 
sacrificing the fact that there was still spiritual bread there. He prioritizes the physical. And he goes into Moab to the destruction of his own life, the destruction of his boys, and to the misery of his wife. Because he allows these things to get into his mind and his heart. My Lord delayeth his coming. Talking nonsense to himself. Things that aren't true. Get back to the Word. Again, Elimelech, you go see what God had said. He would always, always, if there's famine, then there's a spiritual problem. Repent. That was the answer for Elimelech and everyone else. Boaz stayed and he prospered. He was a mighty man of wealth. Having stayed in the place where there was a famine, God took care of him. This is, this is the problem. Corruption in the heart, corruption in the head, and it leads to corruption of the hand. He begins to beat, verse 45, the men servants and maidens. He has no, no fear of God before his eyes. And I think perhaps there is a sense in this men servants and maidens is a recognition of those who are remaining faithful to the master. So he becomes a persecutor of the brethren. He's abusing those that are faithful to the cause of the master. He beats them. Ah, because he, 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 his, his conscience gets convicted by, by seeing their faithful living out of their duties, their faithfulness to their master, to their Lord. The man who walks with God is a constant beacon of condemnation to the person who refuses to do so. Because you walk your life and you remain faithful and, and, and people, people who aren't faithful as they see you, it will bother them. It will bother them. And you'll wonder, well, why, why are they talking behind my back? Why are they treating me this way? It's not really you they have a problem with. It's the master. They're out of touch with him. They don't like his commands, his stipulations. They don't like living under his law. They want to live under their own law. And as you live out the, the will of God and obey his law, it's, it's like constantly screaming to them what the true way is, which they're trying to forget about and eradicate and remove. So he beats them. He becomes a persecutor. And to be drunken, careless living. It's like the rich fool we, we dealt with some weeks back. The rich fool, you know, he, 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 he thinks that, you know, I'll continue to live, nothing will ever happen to me, and life is eat, drink, and be merry, you know, just live how you please. So, corruption. It's corruption. Corruption in the heart, the head, and the hand. And that tends to be the way, the order that it goes. See a man corrupt in his dealings long before corrupt in his heart. Long before. Corruption. And thirdly, condemnation. There's condemnation here. Verse 46 through 48. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him. 
and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him as portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, note that, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. This is a theme that we've dealt with already, just looking at it as an overview, first of all. Stepping back and realizing that, that the Lord will execute judgment in different ways. But you note here in verse 46 that it is first of all surprising. This condemnation here is surprising. The Lord of that servant will come on a day when he looketh not for him, at an hour when he is not aware. He has no clue what's coming. <laughs> no clue. Of course he doesn't, because he imagines he's delayed. And the Lord's delaying his coming, and he's living as if he's never coming back again. He has no need to be concerned. And if he, if he does have to prepare for his coming, it's so far away that he doesn't have to be worried about it. No. Oh, <laughs> yes. The way to hell paved with good intentions, as often has been said. All sorts of intentions, possibly, that he had didn't matter. So the judgment of the Lord comes. It comes in a surprising way. But I want you to note something. Please mark it carefully. Look what it says here. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. I think that there is to be an understanding of what he thought would be his portion. What perhaps everyone, at least at some point, imagined would be his portion. That he would be with the believers. This is the shock of it. This is Matthew 7. My Lord delayeth is coming. He's using that language. My Lord. What does Jesus say? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Have we not X, Y, and Z? Beloved, our Lord is speaking here to all, and it has a discipling effect. Let's, let's not just immediately cut this portion out and say, I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It has no meaningful relevance to me. This person, if I'm understanding the language, he is in the public worship of God. He was appointed to be a steward, to be a servant of the master. He was expected to be faithful. This is a word first and foremost to the preacher. For the preacher is in danger of what is warned of in this passage. I mentioned Robert Murray McShane. One of the things he was known for, in one sense, it was a bit of a, a, a trick question, but he would, he would ask his friends. He was, apparently, he would ask his friends, he would say, do you think the Lord's going to come today? And they would say, no, I don't think today. And then he would, he would quote this passage, you would come in an hour when you think not. 
I, 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 there are other, all sorts of ways of examining that, but I'll tell you something. There, there's, a, there's a good kind of check right there, isn't there? A good edifying check of the way you're living, how you're thinking. Oh, we need men like that in our lives, don't we? People who help us. Because we get, we get careless. That's what happened to me. We became careless. The corruption led to a carelessness. And so he thought, he's not looking when he's not aware. And he's going to cut him into pieces. Well, this is graphic language. And we'll appoint him as portion with the unbelievers. Again, let me underscore that. The expectation is that he will not be there. He'll be with the believers. I understand why our Lord would bring this language. I really do. Because the most horrific thought is to have a people before you that you assume everything is fine. And if there's even one, one, who's living a lie, who's allowed the corruption to get into their hearts and their heads, and it's working its way out in their hands. Yet they're still sitting among believers. And everyone's assuming all is well. They need to hear it. So the condemnation is surprising. They're not expecting it. This world is not expecting it. But neither are people in the church. We're not not expecting. So, let me me just stop there and say, well, what what am I to do? What What am I to do, preacher? This language is to drive you into the arms of Christ. It's the only safe place to be. Had the man experienced an arousing of his conscience, an awakening of his heart, he would have quickly corrected all the things he had cast aside. He would have made amends with the people that he had harmed. And he would have perhaps even made preparation to go and meet with his master, send a message to his master, or stand and wait for his master to immediately run like the prodigal with a whole story in his head, ready to say, I'm willing to be a servant, or so on and so forth. But it's that attitude, it's that frame of humility and recognition that then the father takes and embraces. He doesn't even get the chance. I love that. We'll get to that. Luke 15, soon enough. He doesn't even get the chance to say what the little dialogue that he had figured out in his head that his father needed to hear. His father just sees him coming. That, that's enough. That's enough. So if, if there's a question in your mind at all, in fact, for all of us, it doesn't matter who we are, this passage drives us into the arms of Christ. It moves us into that place of refuge and safety. I say, I can't. I, I, am I as faithful as I ought to be? No. 
Am I as wise as I should be with what God has given? No. Have I been as diligent as I ought? Am I watching and waiting as I should? No. No. And so we run. We run with reliance on his mercy. That's, that's, that's how you respond. But the condemnation is not just surprising, it's also suitable. It is suitable. When you read verse 47 and 48, you will see how the Lord underlines something that he has dealt with before and has made plain. Something we've looked at so many times in, was it Matthew 12? that uh, I don't think I need to turn there again. It's the realization of, of suitable judgment. There's always suitable judgment. Don't imagine that Jesus Christ is ever going to be cruel. He is going to appoint perfect judgment on that day. But aside from getting into that matter of how the judgment and people's experience of the wrath of God will be distinct, because it will. It will. What becomes clear in other passages, as well as in this one, is the fact that the worst judgment is reserved for those who ought to have known better. The conclusion of our Lord here and elsewhere is Something we want to not believe. And that is this. That the worst sinners in the world are in the church. We don't want to believe that. We don't. We want to imagine they're out there somewhere. Out there. That servant which knew his Lord's will, not secret will, not how he's working things out in creation and providence or whatever, but what he has revealed in his word. That servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. One sense church being among God's people and under the means of grace is the most frightening thing. And when Christ meets out his judgment. On the great day of God, the most extreme experience of His wrath will be on those who knew most. Want to know who's there? Theologians are there. 
theologians, preachers, rabbis. People who spend their days and their weeks or months and their years somewhat similar as to who, how I do. The worst judgment. Christ does not want Peter and James and John and the other disciples to switch off. He does not want for a moment for them to imagine there's no application. Because there's the strongest application here for them, for the disciples. Those that knew their Lord's will and prepared not themselves, neither did according to His will. So it's said of Judas that he went to his own place. The place prepared for the devil and his angels? Yes. It's, it's Judas's place. It's the place where he belongs. A man who cast out devils, did many marvelous works, And yet there will be others, not quite as aware, not quite as conscious of right and wrong and what the Lord has revealed. Verse 48, he that knew not. There's ignorance here. And did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Yes. All the world is guilty before God. All have sinned and come short of His glory. There's no hiding place for men who live in rebellion against God. It's just a matter of degrees. Degrees of judgment. And so people say, well, what about those who never knew? Take them right here. Take them right here. But they never heard the name of Jesus Christ. How can they be condemned, judged, sent to the everlasting torments of God's wrath? How? Doesn't seem loving. And yet, as I have said many times, the logical conclusion of that, if you follow the logic of that, keep people in ignorance, best way to populate heaven is for every Christian to be silent. Never say a word. Don't talk. Don't send forth missionaries. Don't plant churches. Let the world live in complete ignorance of the glory of God, of the person of Jesus Christ. Let them never hear of it. And in their ignorance, they will be wafted into the presence of God unharmed. That is not, that is not the burden of Paul in Romans 10. How shall they hear without a preacher? How are they going to know to, as it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord? How are they going to know to call on this name? 
How are they going to be aware? Unless we send forth preachers. Because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The judgment will be suitable. There's much we do not know about that, but it will be suitable. Bottom line tonight for each of us is, are we really living as a ready people? We need to learn from men like Machine, who said, let nothing dim the eye that is looking on eternal realities. There are things that threaten to dim the eye, that look upon eternal realities. Things that threaten. The stuff of life. Ambition. All sorts of desires and things that are natural and sometimes we may argue have their place, but they can have a, a dimming effect. They dim. They dim the eye. And so we're not, we're not kind of immersed in thoughts of eternity. We're not praying, even so come Lord Jesus. And so God mercifully allows the vast majority of us to live longer than, than McShane. Because McShane learned... He learned what he needed to learn within 12 years of his conversion. Converted at 18, dies at 29. And he understood live in light of eternity. Make every moment count. I don't know how he learned it so well except by the grace of God. But it may be said of his life as I said in Hebrews 11, of whom the world is not worthy. He had learned what he needed to learn, ministered how he needed to minister, and God took him home. The world was not worthy of him. But here we are, some of us on the road a long time. And we're nearer eternity than ever before. And yet, is it as pressing on our hearts and minds? Is it like right there? Some of you, some of you may step into it before the end of this year. God knows I might step into it. Before the end of this year, step into eternity. Will it be well done? Well done. Or has the mind of this wicked, corrupt servant come into our hearts? You see it, you know, you do, you see it in some. May it never be found in us. persecutor of the saints, abuser of the gifts of God, eat and drink and be drunk and taking the gifts of God, as it were, and, and abusing it. Because live your best life now. I pray. I pray we're all found Faithful and wise. May God help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, He's 
true prophet, the prophet that Moses spoke of. You read through the language of some Old Testament prophets and then you read through the Gospels and you realize, our Lord Jesus, He spoke so clearly. may not have felt very loving to stand before him on such occasions, but what, what effect upon the heart did it produce? What effect does it produce in your heart and mine? Does it drive us into the arms of Jesus Christ? There's your refuge. There's your hope. Run there. Maybe you are a prodigal. You need to run into the arms of the Lord. Run. Run tonight. Why delay? Why delay? You think the Lord's going to delay His coming or His call in your life? You think you have years. You think you have years. Run into His arms. Plead. Beg for His mercy. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. If you need my help, I'll be glad to open the Word of God with you before you go home. Lord, I pray, please take thy Word. Do something with this Word that no mere human energy or strength or tactics can do. Stamp it on our hearts and shape our lives by it. Gracious God, I pray that everyone here would be found in Christ, saved by the blood of the crucified one, not trusting in anything but the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Drive away complacency. Drive away carnality. Drive away all forms of corruption that fester in the heart, extend to the head and to the hand. Make us like Jesus. Bless then this congregation go with each of us this week that we may live to thy glory and we might live in light of eternity. Be with us downstairs and bless the food provided and may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.